This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. High blood pressure is one of these insidious issues, is that it is, for the most people, it is totally asymptomatic and it is having chronic changes on our end organs. And these are our eyes, our brain, our kidneys, and our heart. And you see these freak events that occurs in healthy people or just with consistent chronic stress that they haven't measured their blood pressure and then suddenly they have a cardiac event. Because hypertension is a silent condition. So some people, they they don't know they have it. So what I do, it's the old school, the way I was taught, I test every patient's blood pressure when they come in. So I I introduce, hey, hey, go, blah, blah, sit them down, talk generally about stuff, take their full case, then take their blood pressure, because if you take it early, it's going to be elevated. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season two of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss hypertension with integrative cardiologist Dr. Jason Kaplan, functional dietitian Robbie Clark, and naturopath Dr. Brad McEwen. A quote that we all discussed came from a study which concluded, like most other chronic diseases, high blood pressure is caused by a mismatch between our genes and the modern diet and lifestyle. High blood pressure affects only 1% of hunter-gatherer populations following a traditional diet, but its prevalence increases when those cultures adopt a Western diet and lifestyle that's characterized by processed and refined foods, sedentary behavior, chronic sleep deprivation, a lack of sun exposure, and excess use of caffeine, alcohol, and tobacco. Dr. Brad McEwen is a PhD, a naturopath and educator with almost 20 years experience. He said the study is a good reminder about genes versus environment. It's a small study. It's on 62 people in total. So it's not enough to get a a full picture, but it gives us a lot of insight. And one thing I want you to think about, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, is genes in our genetic code drive us. But at the same time, if we put in the wrong fuel and mistreat the system, things go wrong. So it's a good example of having a population who have a traditional diet and lifestyle and everything is good and have a very low percentage of hypertension, high blood pressure. But then once they start adopting a more Western diet and lifestyle, as you've just mentioned, things start to have that steamroll or domino effect. So I find it very interesting that, again, you can have the best genes, but it's what you do with those genes that have a greater impact. So I'd like to see research where those same people 
were then taken out of the Western society and given back their traditional diet and lifestyle to see if their hypertension went back to normal, like normal range of blood pressure, or interestingly, if what they've done in a short amount of time damaged their system enough to actually have long-term you know, negatives on the system. So I, I, I like the idea of the study because we see it a lot in a lot of research, and this is one that's actually saying we took these you know, 62 people and this is what actually happened. So it's not just theory now, it's actual practice. And you know, 1% of um, high blood pressure in that population is, might as well say, zero. It, it, it's so low that it could have been just due to them running, chasing a zebra or something, doing their normal hunter-gatherer activities. But then as soon as you remove them from that environment, put them into a Western diet and lifestyle, it just totally frazzled their system. And their system with its genetic code didn't know what to do. It didn't know how to metabolize the carbohydrates, the glucose, the fats, and the alcohol and caffeine, like everything else. It wasn't able to do that. And then because they were sitting down more, for example, the sedentary behavior, they're used to moving around. So all of these things that they do every day, they then did the opposite. And I think we can, we have proven that we can reverse these things, haven't we? That's correct. And uh, I always look at, you know, when people say, can you prevent and manage chronic disease? I say yes, which is one of my shortest answers. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, they say, how can you prevent someone with cardiovascular disease if they've already got it? And I'm going, you can prevent it from getting worse. Yes. So there's two different forms of prevention, prevent it from happening, prevent it from getting worse. And then we look at the other word called reverse. So we can actually improve the person's quality of life, quality of health, and reverse all their symptoms and their causations and their risk factors so they can have a good quality of life. So this is a good example of doing the opposite by including all these behaviours, now improving that by saying get better sleep, better diet, better lifestyle, reduce your alcohol, reduce your caffeine, no smoking, and other things we talked about in the, the previous podcast. Those are all greatly benefit our health which then in turn lower our risk of other chronic diseases and improves our cardiometabolic profile. Absolutely. And what proportion of your patients have hypertension? Again, it's a very good question because hypertension is a silent condition. So some people, they don't know they have it. So what I do, it's the old school, the way I was taught, I test every patient's blood pressure when they come in. So I, I introduce, hey, hey, go, blah, blah, sit them down, talk generally about stuff, take their full case, then take their blood pressure because if you take it early, it's going to be elevated. Well, you know, the old white-collar hypertension. Yes. Um, it could be elevated because they're scared or nervous. And then I take note of it. And then if it's within, you know, a certain range, it could be just the, the benefit. Taking one is not enough. But at the same time, I will take it each time they came in. So back in my younger, younger days, one of my blood pressure readings for a while was 210 over 140. Oh, wow. I had that every day and I was, should have been blowing my head off for that blood pressure. But then I realized the work I was at many, many years ago was causing me stress and it wasn't a good environment for anyone to work in. So I removed myself, so using preventative naturopathic care, <laughs> I removed myself from the triggers and the risk factors and guess what happened to my blood pressure? Went down. To 120 over 80. Oh, perfect. And I'm like, way to go, buddy. Yes, everyone has stress and, and pressures, but because I love what I do and I enjoy you know, what I do, I don't have that stress and pressure that other people would if they didn't. Mm, yeah. That, that helps a lot. And it's very interesting that I can say probably 10% of my patients would have what we would classify as hypertension. And it's not a big number, but it's big enough. 
and it's due to various different factors that we've talked about before. And then I think because it goes unnoticed, we just make them take note of it. You know, you don't feel high blood pressure or low blood pressure until it gets to the extremes. You don't feel it. So I just say to people, take note of what you're doing and then we put them on the management plan that we, we talked about before. And then you'll find that the blood pressure improves even quickly, like even the next appointment, they get improvements because they're taking better care of themselves. They're noticing when they get stressed. They're noticing when they're eating chippy chips and bad foods and they're improving that. And that's just the simple things. Dr. Jason Kaplan is a specialist, adult, cardiologist and physician with a special interest in integrative and preventative cardiology. I came to be interested in preventative cardiology. It was actually from a very seminal event in that when I did my cardiology training at Sydney's Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, that was the most amazing place to train in cardiology because we had great teachers. But the majority of my training there was dealing with very sick people. And it was people who had already had cardiovascular events. It was people who had heart attacks that we used to get up in the middle of the night and open up their arteries. It was dealing with people who were in heart failure from multiple insights to their heart. And then it came to me that we've got, we've got to be trying to get to these patients much earlier in the course of their illness before they actually present with, with, with a cardiovascular event. And it, it was really, really hit home because sadly, when, in my final year of my, my fellowship there, one of the cardiologists that was working there had a, had a heart attack while running and he was in his, in his late 40s and he sadly passed away. And it really hit home that there's an opportunity for prevention and picking up early disease and trying to prevent disease before it occurs or before people have an event. And so for the last 10 years in private practice I, and straight after my fellowship, I started learning as much as I could about preventative cardiology, about the early detection of heart disease and also lifestyle and diet ways to manage heart disease because this is what engages people and allows our patients to take control of, of their condition as opposed to just giving them a tablet and sending them away. Dr Kaplan says the statistics on hypertension are sobering. When you analyse Australian men of the age of 50, over a quarter of them currently are on antihypertensive medication. That is a medication that they take every, every day for the rest of their lives. It is a staggering and sobering number. And often some of them are not just on one medication. They're often, often it needs two medications to get adequate control of, of high blood pressure. So it gives an idea about the scope of the problem. And as mentioned, you know, in some of the talks about the early origins of coronary atherosclerosis, or coronary, or coronary artery disease is that it has its origins very early in life. That instead of, that we need to think about more primordial prevention. So as you, as the, the quote beautifully mentioned about the, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, these changes start early in life. And the better we can get into, get our arterial health earlier in life, the better we are setting things up for a cardiovascular health later in life. So there, is a, there are certain people that have a high blood pressure that is genetically mediated. 
and they often will have high blood pressure in families. And there are certain, we do know that there are genes associated with this that, that can be inherited. However, in Western society, I think that we know that there is very strong lifestyle component to hypertension. And that, that, is, that relates to multiple factors such as, you know, insulin resistance, being, being overweight. People who are overweight develop sleep apnea, which is strongly associated with high blood pressure. Not doing enough physical exercise. There were studies that showing that people just do half an hour of aerobic exercise. That is one of the best ways we can lower blood pressure. When someone comes into my rooms that are not, is not controlled on free blood pressure medications, I say, how much aerobic exercise or walking you are, you are doing? Very, you know, dietary patterns have a very strong part to play. And I can tell you that I, I have some patients that have decided to go 100% on a plant-based diet. So these patients um, mostly follow a vegan dietary pattern and very rarely do any of them have underlying hypertension. So they often don't, don't need medications. But as I said previously, we can get 60 or 70% there in the majority, in the majority of, my, of our patients. We're going we're gonna to make a major impact. We also know that a diet that is plentiful in vegetables and that's why that, that recommendations five serves of vegetables two serves of fruits and especially vegetables such as you know beetroot you know beetroot which is a nitric oxide donor and it vasodilates blood vessels it can be very helpful in, in the management of blood pressure um, when people start to eat more processed foods that are high in dietary sodium or you have diets that are very predominantly animal-based or higher fat leave out a lot of these very healthy foods, then people start to develop hypertension. So I think dietary patterns are very, you know, very helpful, you know, regular exercise and maintained throughout one's life cycle. And just on um, the medications, and it sounds like a similar story to the statins. In fact, I read a 2020 study that concluded that antihypertensive medications weren't effective for younger people, so 18 to 59-year-old healthy people with mild hypertension, but those aged over 60, uh, it was found to be effective at reducing mortality. They had um, moderate to severe hypertension. Do you find that yourself? Look, clinically, yes. Um, I think that, that that probably is the case. The, the challenges that we need to get across to our patients is high blood pressure is one of these insidious issues is that it is for the most people it is totally asymptomatic and but it is having a chronic changes on our end organs and these are our eyes our brain our kidneys kidneys and our hearts and I, I liken it I talk to people about you know just like you see the rocks you know the waves pound against the rocks on the coastline each one wave probably doesn't have uh, that much effect but you do that thousands and thousands of times over years you start to see erosion of the rocks and the same thing happens with blood pressure so while you know in younger patients that may not have such an immediate clinical effect having persistent levels of blood pressure, especially heading into, you know, our patients for, for fifth decades may, may become problematic later in life. And when we start to see the problems of blood pressure, so when we see thickening of the heart or muscle called left ventricular hypertrophy, when we see changes in the back of the eye, when we see early protein excretion in the kidneys called proteinuria or microalbuminuria, or most importantly in, in the brain, 
we can see changes called chronic microvascular ischemia. You know, if that's often too late, the damage is already being done. So we really want to get, get on top of this in, a, in an earlier fashion. So just as we talked about thinking about treatment risk factors, in, for, especially for cholesterol in younger patients, we should do the same for, for high blood pressure. And one thing I think that's really important to note is, is that if you have a, a young person under the age of 30 with very severe high blood pressure, they should be referred for exclusion of secondary causes of high blood pressure. So sometimes there are endocrine causes or renal causes that are driving this process. So just think about that patient that you may come across in your practices. So can you just take me through a case where a patient does come in with hypertension? What do you do with them in terms of testing and and determining, I guess, causation and treatment? So when someone comes in with high blood pressure, I first... I get take an adequate history, do an examination, look at the bloods. Is there something that's causing a secondary cause of high blood pressure? I then look for an evidence of end organ problems. So are there manifesting signs of left ventricular hypertrophy? Um, are there, is there any protein being excreted in the urine? And then once I think, usually by the time someone comes to me, they've often seen a primary care physician and usually been started on one or two medications and or something has been picked up on there sometimes on their ECG as well that may be contributing to uh, you know to, to left ventricular hypertrophy or signs of cardiac damage related to high blood pressure so if there is already signs of end organ dysfunction it suggests a need for more intense treatment and once again that treatment goes down the route of either you know pharmacological therapy so does someone need a change in pharmacological therapy change the addition of another medication or what things we can do lifestyle-wise to improve their health. So do they need to do more aerobic exercise? Do they need to lose weight? Do they need to add, start doing some, some contemplative practice such as yoga, which has also been shown to reduce blood pressure or meditation? Do they need to add more, you know, more, more regular exercise, more, more plant-based diet? So these are all contributors to how I would approach someone with elevated blood pressure. I often, my clinical practice, I don't feel that there are lots of supplements that have been very beneficial in blood pressure alone. There's been a small study that's looked at aged garlic extracts and it's in one small Australian study it has been shown to reduce blood pressure in a similar fashion to a single to a standard dose of blood pressure medication. Often patients will find magnesium is helpful as a muscle relaxant and our blood vessels have uh, smooth muscles. But you you alluded to arterial health. So, you know, a plant-based diet, people that have healthy arteries that are not unhealthy, that are not in a persistent state of vasoconstriction and not persistently stressed will be healthier and lead to a lower blood pressure. What are some secondary causes of hypertension? So these are often these lifestyle factors such as sleep apnea, other medications that people may be ingesting, such as anti-inflammatories. The other things, other secondary causes need to be looked at, including adrenal disease, so adrenal adenomas, kidney disease, um, you know, benign adrenal tumours, um, the thyroid disease. Um, these are some of the things that are usually screened for in a, in a, second, in a secondary screen. Um, excess cortisol can also be associated with high blood pressure. What do you find works best with high blood pressure? I mean, you've definitely gone through the diet and the lifestyle, but in this case, what do you find works the best, the medication route or the diet and lifestyle or a combination? Look, I often find a combination works best. People are 
I have a lot of patients that are keen to minimise their, their, their medications. And look, sometimes I reckon people need medications and they are providing, you know, providing a clinical benefit. And often some of the blood pressure medications, such as the ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor antagonists, are associated with a reduction in cardiovascular events. And just because you are taking medication does not mean that you shouldn't focus on the lifestyle because they will only be complementary to the medication that you're taking. Robbie Clark is a functional dietitian, exercise scientist, and ex-elite gymnast. Yeah, so hypertension is one of those really interesting ones is that we as humans can't feel high blood pressure. And we could be walking around with consistent high blood pressure and you see these freak events that occurs in healthy people um, or just with consistent chronic stress that they haven't measured their blood pressure and then suddenly they have a cardiac event. So it's one of those silent risk factors which typically I obviously will ask if my clients know what their blood pressure is like. So the hypertensive clients I see obviously already know that they are hypertensive because they've come to me already on medication. What I find really interesting around this population group is that they may have been on hypertensive medication for years and then when they've come to see me, I ask them, so what's your blood pressure doing recently? And they're like, I don't know. So they're not actually checking it regularly, which I find quite gobsmacking in the fact that it's a condition you're being treated for So therefore, you want to know and keep a tabs on it and see how it's progressing. Mm. Because what I see also is people on long-term medication, on the same dose, they start noticing some side effects or some symptoms, newly risen symptoms, and they find that their dose is just too high. So it hasn't been modified. And therefore, I refer them back to their GP, do a series of testing, and then we try to uh, monitor or, or modify the dose that they're on. So, yeah, a majority of hypertensive clients, um, above 90%, are already on antihypertensive medication, um, such as the ACE inhibitors, calcium channel blockers, um, beta blockers, or even the diuretics. And I did read a study, and you've got it there, 2020 study, concluded that these medications weren't effective for those, I mean, 18 to 59-year-olds healthy people with mild hypertension, but those older people who had moderate to severe hypertension, they were effective. What are your thoughts on on all of that? Um, As a precaution and as a protective mechanism, acute protective mechanism, I think, yeah, that can definitely be the case. But again, I'm a science person, so I really do base my recommendations on the research. And if meta-analysis shows that there is no necessarily long-term benefit of remaining on a particular medication for a particular condition and if it can be managed or treated through lifestyle modification, I think we're all in agreement that we everyone would choose that over taking a medication in the first place. 
And in what number of cases, and I understand that you work alongside the doctors with the medication, but what kind of success do you have in enabling the reduction of a dose of medication or an improvement in their blood pressure? Yes, well, quite, quite considerable, actually. And again, this if I am um, assisting my clients while they're on medication with nutraceuticals, then we see improvements in their hypertension. That is when I need to refer them back to their GP to see if we can modify their dosage. So again, if I start a protocol, we need to monitor that because there could be fluctuations in their blood pressure. So it is really important for practitioners to know that, that, okay, just because I'm treating them alongside with their GP, you absolutely need to be aware that some of these nutrients that you're prescribing can have a significant impact on their blood pressure. And so we need to monitor that. And are the dietary changes that you um, implement, are they similar to what we spoke about with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes? So what your listeners might be familiar with is the DASH diet, which is an acronym that stands for a Dietary Approach to Stop Hypertension. Uh, very creative. Um, <laughs> it, it is honestly a huge, a large studies have been done on this particular dietary approach. And it has been shown that a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, and low fat dairy, if people do consume dairy, and, and having an emphasis on uh, your fish and poultry over red meats with reduced saturated fat intake and total fats. Um, so the way to look at the DASH diet, it's essentially low in saturated fat, cholesterol, sugar, and refined carbohydrates, first and foremost, and is especially high in fiber and um, also potassium. And it's these factors that are likely to contribute to its efficacy for treating hypertension in the first place. Also, I should mention a sodium-restricted DASH diet may be particularly effective for people with hypertension as well. That's probably the biggest nutrient or uh, marker that we have talked about um, clinically to reduce in people with hypertension is that sodium. Um, so that's been long studied. But it's the other things that tend to be forgotten, how important that fibre is. And as I mentioned in your other segment is about how as a Western diet, we don't consume enough fibre. We have a lot of refined carbohydrates and added sugars, processed foods, um, and a lack of fruit and vegetables. What's your sweet spot for um, how much fibre someone should be having per day? Is it around that 30 grams? Well, the DASH diet, if it's done correctly, that has 31 grams of fibre per day. So, yes, that's why that sweet spot has been uh, calculated. Robbie Clark's go-to nutrients include vitamin E and omega-3 fatty acids. Obviously, there are some listeners saying, oh, well, I treat people who are vegan. Um, so if that's the case, then it's the algal oils that can be used in those situations as well. And omega-3s, we just know that they've been associated with just lower cardiovascular risk in general. And then I also like to prescribe enhanced bioavailable uh, CoQ10 and around 300 milligrams per day. So that's quite a high dose. Um but particularly for hypertensive um, clients, as we're talking about. And 
it has strong antihypertensive and also cardioprotective effects, particularly with the endothelial lining. So I do love prescribing ubiquinol in my anti um, hypertensive, sorry, my hypertensive clients, definitely. And also it, it has some vasodilator effects as well, which is what we want in cardiovascular approach. Um, magnesium. Oh, hello, magnesium. Magnesium, as all prackies know, is that we love it. Um, it has so many um, important roles in also metabolic conditions. So that's mm. one thing that I also use, um, which I didn't mention in my insulin resistance and metabolic conditions, that I'll absolutely prescribe magnesium for those clients as well because of the improvement of insulin sensitivity and also blood glucose uh, management as well. Sorry, from a cardiovascular perspective, you know, you can prescribe up for hypertensive clients, you can prescribe up to 600 milligrams of magnesium per day. And we know that this improves the endothelial function and it also acts as a calcium channel blocker and vasodilator. So that's why magnesium is important in these patients. And form, are you using a particular form? It's definitely the orotate. So there's some interesting studies done around the magnesium orotate and how it can also enhance the bioavailability of CoQ10 in the mitochondria and the cells. So to make it the CoQ10 do its job better, the orotate can be really beneficial um, in that regard. But we call magnesium in, for hypertensive clients nature's calcium channel blocker and that's because, again, from a biochemical perspective, most calcium is outside the cell and magnesium regulates cell communication, allowing the correct amount of calcium into the cell. So it helps to thin the blood and dissolves calcium in the blood. So that's what the mechanism of, of that is for magnesium, which I think is really important for prax to know if they don't already and then just finally, if I was to add some more supplementation, mm. it could potentially be high-potency taurine um, up to six grams per day. And this is essential for bile acid production and absorption of lipids. So if you've got a supplement that might have taurine in it, which a lot of these supplements nowadays do for the cardiovascular treatment, then that's excellent in that regard. And also riboflavin um, or folate and B12 if homocysteine is high because a lot of these cardiovascular patients have elevated homocysteine which and is another um, biomarker which a lot of doctors are not measuring. And so that's definitely on my list of things to uh, my cardiovascular profile that I like to measure. And berberine, finally berberine. I talk about berberine a lot but um it's one of the most, you know, significant herbs to its broad therapeutic actions as an antioxidant, uh, lipometabolic factors, anti-inflammatory, hepatoprotective, so it's important for the liver and also digestive support as well. Um, so all the things that we treat collectively, uh, berberine has a very broad aspect of it. And then just to list maybe additionals that depending, again, individually how you might treat somebody, you've obviously got curcumin, um, which is anti-inflammatory, oxidative stress if it's there. Quercetin, it seems to be the flavour of the month as well. That has some, being a flavonoid, obviously is very important to the anti-inflammatory aspects and the antioxidant. 
And then you've just got vitamin C, N-acetylcysteine, so NAC, lipoic acid, I might kind of interchangeably add there, especially if there are uh, blood glucose issues or insulin issues. And then even melatonin has been shown to have several mechanisms of action which lowers blood pressure um, because it dilates blood vessels, inhibits the sympathetic nervous system and regulates the mitochondria to reduce nighttime blood pressure. Okay, yeah. I'd be looking into their melatonin levels and obviously we can test that quite easily through urine, especially if you're looking at cortisol production as well. You can do the melatonin and the cortisol at the same time. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we change gears slightly to discuss gestational hypertension and preeclampsia with naturopaths Amanda Haberecht, Belle Roundtree and Jane Hutchins, and we also hear a mother's experience of preeclampsia. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept.